uh, this morning, uh, no matter who you are and where you're coming from. Uh, and here's the thing. Uh, we, we all come into this room this morning uh, with significant messes, uh, with significant things that are broken about us. There's things that in your life right now, you're like, this is not the way I want it to be. I hate that I'm this way or that this is going on. Um, and so here's the thing. To be a Christian is, is not to try and project to each other that we have it all together. That's, that's not what it means to be a Christian. Um, uh, you don't have to, you know, just try to keep all these things in your life hidden and secret from other people out of fear of that you might be exposed or something like that. Um, we all have our stuff, uh, me included, okay? And it's really, really important that we understand that because the Christian message is come as you are, and to a large degree, it's okay that you're not okay, okay? It's important that we realize that. Uh, but here's also the thing. We simultaneously come into this room with significant hope this morning that we must always place in front of ourselves because it's there. You see, we all have this enormous and blissful promise that we can change. Like, we can change. And the promise of Scripture is not only that we can change because of Jesus, but that we will change because of Jesus. That whatever it is that you're frustrated with this morning, you can and you will change because of Jesus. The message of Jesus is come as you are, but our goal and desire is not that we would stay as we are. The message of Jesus is that it is okay to not be okay, but his message also says it's not okay to want to stay that way. See, the reason is because you can and you will change if you give your life to Jesus and his ways. It's such a hopeful message. And so I, with that said, I ask you this morning, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what do you really want to be when you grow up? Because you're going to change. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, when I was a boy, I wanted to be like my dad. My dad is um, a, a first-generation Christian, grew up in a non-believing household. He was going to become a civil engineer, and God saved his life, and he became uh, a pastor, actually. And so I grew up hearing my dad preach, and so I, would, I had this like enormous old briefcase, and I would lug this thing out into my room, and I would set up all my stuffed animals, and I'd put on his like brute old man cheap cologne, and I'd put his like Birkenstocks on, don't know why, I thought they were cool, and even though he didn't preach in those, and uh, I would preach to my stuffed animals, okay? And I'm sure a bunch of them got saved, it was awesome, okay? We had revivals in my bedroom, Okay? But eventually, I grew out of the stuffed animal phase, and I wanted to become a like, professional baseball player or something. My dad wasn't that, so I kind of moved on. But here I am, preaching now, not to stuffed animals, but to all you lovely people, okay? So nonetheless, this is what I wanted to be when I, when I was going to grow up. Um, I ask my kids this often. I asked Tucker what he wanted to be when he grew up, and he said he wants to be an author. He wants to be a director of movies. Like, That's awesome. I asked Eden what she wanted to be when she grew up. She said either a famous ballerina, a famous singer, or a famous dancer. So like, basically, you just want to be famous. She's like, yes. Um, she's then caveated by saying, or just a mom that works at a makeup store. So, yeah. I don't think that's settling for her. I think that's like an amazing dream. But nonetheless, um, I asked Gus what he wants to be when he grows up, and he says, the guy who pumps gas, <laughs> right? Because that just sounds fun to him, okay? Um, we get asked this question a lot when we're kids, right? 
What do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, and you get asked this a lot when you're in college. You're studying for a certain degree or major, and people always are probably annoyingly, people like me asking you, what are you going to do with that? And you feel frustrated because you're like, I don't really know. But I'm um, just doing it because it's something I may be interested in or something. We get asked the question, what do you want to be all the time? But this morning, the question that lingers over chapter 4 that Paul's addressing is not what do you want to be when you grow up, but who do you want to be when you grow up? Who do you want to be when you grow up? See, getting a career is one thing. Becoming a certain type of person is a whole other thing. But our passage this morning, I think, addresses this really well in a very convicting way. It's pretty powerful. Uh, Roadmap will be on the screen for you. Uh, In the first five verses, I think it's really important because this passage asks this question that will completely and utterly influence who you want to be. And the question is, whose praise do you need? Whose praise do you need? That'll influence you a lot. Secondly, the question's kind of raised. It's like this evaluative question. What does your lifestyle reveal that you want to be? And lastly, uh, we see this incredible, incredible passage, uh, 14 through 21. We see how to grow, how how to start becoming who it is that hopefully all of us who follow Jesus actually want to be, actually want to be. So here we go, verses one through five. Whose praise do you need? I'm gonna read this again. It says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Incredible statement he just said. Like, I don't even judge myself, okay? Uh, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Uh, Why is Paul talking about judging and being judged, and why is this important? Uh, He's talking about this because there's this growing movement in this church that he's planted, that he deeply loves and cares about. There's this growing movement in this church to look at Paul and how he hasn't really been this like super sophisticated sounding preacher. He doesn't sound that, there's not a lot of pizzazz when he talks. Uh, And then they look at his lifestyle, which we'll see in just a minute, and it's not really a lifestyle much to be desired. And so all these people are beginning to judge him. They're they're jumping to these conclusions, and they're questioning not only his authenticity in being an apostle, but his authenticity in even being a Christian who's faithfully following Jesus. So how is Paul responding to them? I mean, these people are just dishing it out. They're dissing on him. And Paul has given his heart and soul to these people. He loves these people. And his reaction to their criticism, we see it in verse 3. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. Not even you, but just people in general. What's he saying? I mean, do you think Paul's just like merely projecting that he doesn't care about their opinion? You know, like uh, when someone gives their opinion about you and it hurts, we often as a defense mechanism, we're like, well, I don't even care about you. I don't even care what you think. And we just move on. But deep down, we're like crying, you know. We're like, oh, that, that really hurts, you know. Is that what Paul's doing here? Is he just trying to, like, defend himself or deflect these emotions that he's probably feeling? No, Paul loves them, and he cares for them. Why else would he be writing them this difficult letter? 
Paul says their opinions of his authenticity don't define him. Why? Verse 4 answers it. It is the Lord who judges me. It's the Lord who judges me. See, what Paul's getting at is the opinion that dominates his life is not the human court, but it's the judge at the bench. It's God. The praise and affirmation that has shaped his life is not the human court. In other words, it's not the crowd, it's God. That's what's dominated and shaped his life. Paul is saying, what controls my life, what dominates my life is what God, the judge, not the human court, thinks of me. He dominates what I care about. He dominates what it is that I'm after in life. He judges me. So the implication for you and me, the implication for them is what? He judges you too. He says, don't pronounce judgment too quickly. Don't don't blow the whistle. The game's not over yet. When God the judge comes, because God, your creator, is coming again. That's a sobering reality. He is coming again. And when he comes, Paul says here, he will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness. And not only just like action type stuff, it says he will disclose the purposes of the heart. He's going to even like put on display even all of our motivations and all these things that sort of drove us in life then each person, it says, will receive their praise, their commendation from God. There's a massive basic principle here in these verses. This is really important. The the commendation you feel like you need, the, the, the judgment that you care about, the opinions that matter most to you, they will control you. Why? Because whatever you need will control you. If you need the affirmation from the crowd, you'll go after whatever it is that they're telling you you should be after because you want their praise. The opinions of the human court will influence how you live, what you care about, what you're after, what, what you want to be when you grow up. Um, I, I love movies, okay? I love films, whatever you want to call them, right? I like talking about them. I love going to the theater and watching them with my wife or other friends or having people over the house and watching movies. And um, there's one thing, though, that I need to confess to you this morning. Okay, my wife knows something about me that most people don't know about me, okay? This time of the year, I love Hallmark movies, okay? Um, I just need to get this out, okay? Um, I would never go up to you and be like, hey, do you want to come over and just throw on Hallmark Channel today and watch some cheesy movie? I would never ask you that. Why? Because I'd be afraid of what you're going to think about me, right? <laughs> All of a sudden, you're not going to like, probably listen to any other recommendations that I ever give you about movies, would you? Right, you're going to judge me, probably. And so today, this is kind of just therapeutic for me a little bit, okay? Nonetheless, like, I would keep something like that hidden because I would care too much about what your opinion of me might be. Right, so judge away, your opinion of me doesn't matter, all right? So, um, (laughs) nonetheless, what I'm trying to say is Paul is able to watch Hallmark freely because he doesn't care what people are going to think about him. He's like, I don't even care. In a sense, what matters is God thinks it's okay, and I'm sure he does, right? See, Paul's able to withstand the backlash, the mocking of people whom he's given so much of his life for, people he's invested in and loved. He's, he's withstanding their backlash, and he's not even lashing back. Right? He's not saying, forget you. I don't need your opinion. 
He's not doing that. He's not changing his ways all of a sudden. And he hears how he's not thought of as an eloquent speaker. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to up my game. I'm going to read some books. I'm going to become a better speaker. Or, you know, this message of the cross is a little too radical. It doesn't make sense in our culture. He's like, you know what? I'll water it down for you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't change his message to sound more palatable and slick. He's not abandoning the call of God on his life because other people are judging him in the name of Jesus. He doesn't change any of that. So how in the world can we not be controlled by the fear of others and what they think about us? How can we be free from the opinions that dominate our lives and actually are influencing what we're after in this life and who we want to be when we grow up? How can we be free from them, not to wash our hands of people's opinions, but so that we can actually be free to start loving people and not just using them or looking for something from them and being controlled by them? Well, you need a big, right view of God, and you need to see that he's coming again. And that he will vindicate his people that have been mocked, and those people will finally receive the praise that they've been longing for. But the praise, the commendation will come from the very lips of God. That's what this passage says. You see, you long for someone to praise you. You long for someone's voice to say, you're okay. You're doing it right. You're successful. That person might be sitting next to you right now. You long for someone's lips to praise you. And so the question is, whose lips do you long to hear that from? See, Paul longs to hear that from the lips of his maker, and it makes all the other noises seem very, very small to him, even his own voice. You see, being an athlete is hard. I mean, I don't personally know this, okay? Um, I can imagine what it would be like you know, to be a famous athlete or something. I've imagined it much in my life. Whatever. The point is, being an athlete is hard, right? You talk to one, you know this. They, they play a competitive game where people like me are way too invested in it when we watch it. And so what happens? They have to endure on a field or a court or something all these cheers and all these boos throughout the game. People are are trying to verbally distract them, like tear them down. They want to see them. You want to see somebody fail. They're they're hoping that they'll fail. And then some people are hoping that you'll succeed. And they're cheering you on that you would succeed. And those people cheering you on that you would succeed when you fail, they might even turn on you and start booing you. This is like what it feels like probably to be an athlete. You hear the cheers, you hear the boos your whole life while you're on that field. But here's the thing. When the final score of the game is posted, the boos and the cheers have no impact, none at all. See, in life, you receive a lot of boos and a lot of cheers, and they'll feel like just so weighty to you. And you'll naturally do whatever it takes to minimize the boos and elevate the cheers, but I want us to consider this morning, whose boos and whose cheers are you hoping to hear? See, Paul is pointing to the game of life, and he's saying the game will be over someday. The Lord is coming, and in that day, the only voice that matters will be his. See, you guys, the voice you long to be praised by will control and shape you and who you want to be when you grow up. Uh, Secondly, uh, this passage evaluates us, and it says the lifestyle that we live actually reveals what we're after. We see this in verses 16 through 13. 
But because of time, um, I just want to read verses 6 and 7. It says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In some, in just these two verses, Paul says, all Christians are receivers. Don't act like you achieved anything. Your salvation has been completely by the grace of God. Why are you forgetting this? His point is that if you forget this, it'll make you prideful and self-centered. And secondarily, if you remember this, that'll actually free you to be humble. And then this is so important. The reason he says this is because it's so important because he moves on from here for the next six verses, verses 8 through 13, and he shows how our lifestyles are actually birthed from this perspective. And it's then that this lifestyle and our lifestyles, in fact, display who it is that we want to be when we grow up. And so he does this by contrasting their lives. So just follow along with me here, verses 8 through 13. Basically, um, I'll sum some of these up for you. But he says, in the Corinthians, you guys have what you want. You're rich. He calls them kings, verse 8. Basically, his point is, you have no needs, basically, or at least you think you don't. He says, but for us, um, I'm like in the opposite category, says in verse 9, but I wish you were ruling because then I'd actually benefit from your ruling because the people who are ruling right now, they're really mistreating us, so I wish you were. Verse 10, he says, you guys are wise. Verse 10, he says, but we are fools for Christ's sake. The Corinthians are apparently strong, but he says, we are weak. It says, you are held in honor. It says, but we are in disrepute, meaning we're like, we're kicked around. Verse 11, he's like, you guys are satisfied. You got some comfy living going on. It says, but right now we are hungry. We're thirsty. Our clothes are in bad shape. Definitely not looking stylish. We're beat up emotionally. We're homeless. And then he says in verse 12, we pick up odd jobs anywhere we can eke out a living. That's what he's referring to there, which is very much a contrast to these people. Because in Greek culture, Greeks thought manual labor was fit only for slaves. So they're like, we would never do that. Paul continues on, and he kind of quits the contrast, but the contrast becomes his response to other people. He says, when they call us names, we basically say, may God bless you, and we actually mean it. When people spread rumors about us, we put in a really good word for them. When it gets really hard following Jesus, when it isn't popular, when our lives are actually threatened by persecution, we don't abandon course. We don't change our message. We keep on following Jesus. And finally, he climatically says, we are the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. This is really uh, sobering here because this word translated scum and refuse literally means things removed as the result of cleaning around. So you know like when you vacuum your house out and you like sweep up your floor and mop it, all that stuff you throw in the garbage that you don't even want to touch, he's like, we're that stuff. That's what the word scum means, the stuff you just want to get rid of. And the word uh, refuse literally is a little more precise. It just means that which is wiped off by rubbing around. So when you like clean your counters or your toilets and stuff like that and you look at the stuff on there, it's disgusting, isn't it, right? No one's going to lick that, okay? He's like, we're that stuff. Okay, that's who we are. So let's just pause here for a second. Do you think that their lifestyles reveal what they're after? What what does the church's lifestyle, when you contrast it, what does it reveal that they're after in life? You'd probably say something like prominence in society. 
praise from the crowd. They want prestige, they want pride, or they are prideful. They want comfort, they want wealth, they want respect from the people around them. What does Paul reveal, what does Paul's lifestyle reveal that he's after? If you weren't thinking clearly, you might say torture, like he's just a masochist or something. Right? Do you think Paul really wants to be like that junk on your dish rag that after you clean the toilet or something like that? Do you think that he's really after? That's what he's really after? I mean, think about it. Both groups here in this contrast, what are they doing? They're claiming the name of Jesus. Both groups are saying, we're Christians. We claim the name of Jesus. He's who we're after. So which column, which list resembles the life of Jesus the most? Just look down at these verses again and just follow along and just think about Jesus this time. Let's go through them real quick. Verse 8, think about Jesus. Jesus wasn't rich. He, he grew up in a blue, as a blue-collared worker in an obscure, not very prominent town. His family worked with their hands. They eked out a living. Right? He actually gave up riches of heaven and became poor so that you and I and everyone who put their faith in him might become rich, like in the true sense of the word. Jesus, like Paul, was sentenced to death, a death that wasn't rightfully his, and he was perceived as last of all. He was the ultimate spectacle. A huge crowd formed and petitioned in unison for his death. Crowds watched him, beaten, and then followed him as he carried his cross to die. He, like Paul, was considered a fool and was mocked, and he even had a sign placed above his head when he was hanging on the cross, mocking him that he thought he was the king of the Jews. He took a position of weakness, not strength. He wasn't held in honor by the world, but he was actually rejected, John says, by the very people that he made and came to save. He endured hunger and thirst in his temptations in the wilderness. He wasn't fashionably dressed. Isaiah says that there was no beauty about him that we should even behold him. And we are told during his earthly ministry of three years that he had no place to lay his head, that he was homeless. When he was called names, he blessed people and he actually prayed for them. When he met the most extreme hardship and persecution, he kept on for the glory that was set before him. When people talked bad about him, he put in good words for them. He was viewed as the least and the very people that he came to save tried to get rid of him like garbage. They tried to take his life. And he did, they did. But actually, in fact, we are told that no one takes Jesus' life, that's what he says. He says, I actually lay it down. Jesus said that you see, even though that was his life, Jesus says, I'm gonna lay it down. Jesus never claimed to be the victim. He didn't wallow in his lifestyle. And I don't think that's what Paul's doing here either because he was after something the world wasn't after. You see, Jesus endured this lifestyle, these experiences. He laid his life down. Jesus was considered garbage on, in that dustpan or on that cloth or whatever it is so that you and I could actually receive life and forgiveness and more than that even, a new trajectory of what we wanna be when we grow up. By all indications, it sure seems like Paul and his band of people are wanting to grow up and be like Jesus and their lifestyle is revealing that. But these other people, it seems like they're trying to marry somehow Jesus with their own pursuits in this world. And so here's the thing. This is the question. What does your lifestyle reveal that you're after right now? Um, I grew up in Montana and I, I used to go fly fishing all the time. We had all these like rivers everywhere. 
uh, like famous rivers to fly fish on. And um, so I used to go fly fishing all the time. And then I moved to California for like seven years, met my wife, we got married. And uh, anytime people would ask, you know, what do you like to do? Or, you know, you have to fill out your social media bio or something, that kind of thing. Um, I'd always put in there, fly fishermen, you know? And uh, it had probably been like seven, eight years, and I'd only gone like a small handful of times, like on, count on one hand kind of thing. And I was like, fly fisherman. And um, my wife was just really loving to me one day and was just like, hey, you, pro- you can't really say you're a fly fisherman anymore if you never fly fish. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. You know, just like really cut me a little bit. And so I was like, yeah, like I'm totally like, yeah, I'm a fly fisherman, but like never fly fishing. Okay, I'm like claiming to be a fly fisherman, but none of my lifestyle would reveal that I am. Like I'm not getting up early on Saturday mornings or something and driving out and standing in freezing water or something to catch a fish. I'm never doing that. So my lifestyle evaluatively reveals that I'm not that. I can call myself that all I want. See, our lifestyles reveal what we're after. What does your lifestyle reveal that you're after? Well, what does your lifestyle reveal who you want to be? See, see, the point is not that we should follow Jesus and seek to be homeless and humiliated. But we must be open to that being actually a possibility. Right? The point is that following Jesus most often doesn't look like wealth. It doesn't look like prosperity. It doesn't look like success in the eyes of the world. And this really presses upon us this morning, I think. Like, we really, really want to somehow follow Jesus. We really, somehow, most of us, we want to love him. But, oh, my gosh, please, not at the expense of success in the eyes of the world. We think following Jesus means that, that I should be wealthy, that I should have everything, not only what I need, but what I want, that following him means that people should and will respect me, that they would actually praise me, that I would somehow be secure even in my material things, my worldly things, that I, if I have those things, that I will be full. That if I follow Jesus, that I will ensure that life won't be hard because God loves me. And God would never allow something like hardship to enter my life. And oh my goodness, guys, God does love us. Oh my gosh, does he love us? More than than ever you could ever imagine. Paul actually says in Ephesians, oh, that you might be able to comprehend, just in a little bit more of a way, like the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. God loves you more deeply and fully than any other person in this world ever could, but that love doesn't guarantee that your life will be one that everybody in the world just is like applauding and praising and respecting. See, let's just be real here this morning for a bit. I am, and I've been super convicted about this this week. I mean, how many of us, we want to follow Jesus, but somehow we want to follow him and have him and simultaneously we want to look and sound just like everybody else in the world. We like somehow have convinced ourselves we don't want to be any different. To, to, to have Christ but not have there be any variation to our lifestyles. And so how long have you been trying to marry Jesus with some like American dream type thing? How long have you been living like that, that we have everything because we achieved it, not because we received it? See, our lives are lives of grace, and the path of following Jesus is the path of the cross. And so what does your lifestyle reveal that you want to be? And if you want to be like Jesus, then the question then remains, how do you get there? How do you grow? 
If it's Jesus you want, then how do you get there? Verses 14 through 21 are very powerful in revealing this. So if you're anything like me right now, you get to the end of chapter, or verse 13, and uh, this is what you might be feeling like. You might be feeling kind of bad about yourself. You're like, oh, geez, sorry, Paul, chill out, you know, like, just calm down. Um, but look at what Paul says. Look at what he says. He says, I do not write these things to you make you ashamed. I'm not trying to shame you. But I'm writing these things to admonish you as my beloved children. Admonish means to like warn or advise or to urge someone to change course. It's like language of love. Even though it's a hard word, it's a word of love. So his goal isn't shame, it's love. Even in 2 Corinthians, when he's referring back to writing this letter, he says in that letter, I wrote you in 1 Corinthians out of affliction and anguish of my heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but because of the abundant love I have for you. So he continues by saying, you have countless guides in Christ. That's what he says next. I love you. That's why I'm writing to you. You have countless guides in Christ, countless people who are gonna tell you what you should do and what you shouldn't do, but I'm a father to you. I'm a spiritual father to you. He's saying there are a lot of people who just can't wait to tell you what is it you should be doing or what you shouldn't be doing, but I'm like a father who's actually gonna be with you and stay with you and, and wanna grow you up into maturity. See, we know this. There's like a big difference, right, between a guide and, and a parent. That's a huge difference. Like a, a guide here is someone who will just tell you where to go, but a parent is someone who will walk you there. Right? They, they will stay with you. They'll protect you. A parent will raise you. A guide has maybe like a one-on-one -on -one coffee date with you. That's what a guide would do. But a parent, I mean, they'll be there for you at the drop of a hat. A guide might care for you, but a parental love, guys, that's irreplaceable, isn't it? He is now based upon this fatherhood love and approach to them that he says what he says next. What does he say? He says, be imitators of me then. Imitate my life. Sorry, how, how, can, uh, how can Paul say that? That just seems crazy, doesn't it? I mean, do you think he was perfect? Well, no, like Philippians 3, he actually says, I'm not already perfect. So how could someone like Paul say this? Because of the way of life that he had, he says in verse 17, it was actually consistent with his teaching. Right? The way that he lived was consistent with his teaching. So he's not saying, imitate me because I'm perfect. It was like, follow me, look at how I'm living, listen to what I'm saying. And what does Paul say over and over again? When you fail, let Christ pick you up and wash you off and keep going towards him. When you fail, receive his grace anew. And therefore, then be gracious to other people. He's not saying be perfect. He's saying trust in Christ when you do fail, when you're not. But pursue him wholeheartedly. So his life agreed with what he taught. Paul practiced what he preached. He walked his talk, which this is so rare, isn't it? I mean, Matthew 23, Jesus said about the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, listen to the Pharisees and do what they say, but don't do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. And then Paul goes on here in verses 18 through 20, and he begins to compare himself again to these divisive leaders in the church, and he says that he hopes to come to them again, and when he comes, he's going to see if they are all talk and no action. 
That's what he says. He says in verse 20 that the kingdom of God, it does not consist in talk, but in power. That talk and actions go together when we're talking about Jesus and his presence in the world. And so often people we seek to imitate, they're all talk and they're no action. They're no power. So to be an effective example, there's nothing more important than living a life consistent with what you, with what you teach. I mean, this is like, uh, as parents, man, these are words for you. These are words for us as parents. Some, a lot of you in this room that are potential parents, you're gonna have babies here soon. But beyond this, Paul's not talking about just biological parents. He's talking about spiritual parents. Spiritual parents, discipling and mentoring. And some of you in this room, you're both of those things. Consider this morning the power of the example and the necessity of practicing what we preach. I mean, do you, do you see it? This whole chapter, what does it start with? Paul's saying, don't judge me. God judges me. Instead of judging me, imitate me. Instead of judging me, stop judging me, imitate me. Why? Because the goal of life, who we should want to be when we grow up, when, when God the judge finally comes is Jesus. So he says, imitate people who are talking and walking like him. And when they fail, they're repenting and they're believing in Jesus again and they're receiving his grace. I mean, look at, look at how this imitation has worked. He says, he says to you what? I'm sending you Timothy, my child. Do you think Paul was the biological father to Timothy? No, spiritual father. I'm sending Timothy, my child, to you. Spiritual child, why? To remind you of my ways. Basically, Paul has spent so much time with Timothy, and Timothy has imitated this Christ-like lifestyle and faith so much that by sending Timothy, he's basically sending himself. Isn't that crazy? Paul says, I can't be with you right now, so I'm just gonna send you Timothy. He, he's been with me so much, he's just like caught it. You wanna know my ways? Look at Timothy. You want to hear my teaching? Look at Timothy. Timmy, my little child, right? Cute little Timmy, right? See, here's the thing. This is the whole point of this. Imitation is caught. It isn't taught. That's Paul's point. Think about it. You don't remember, unless you're a whiz, you often don't remember what people say to you, do you? Maybe in some very climactic moments when someone says something very hurtful, you hold on to that. Or when someone speaks something really powerful, you might hold on to that. But most of the time, we don't remember what anybody says to us, do we? But we remember what they did. Um, growing up, uh, my dad, huge influence on my life. Um, and he is a teacher. Like, he's the kind of dad uh, who would always be like, Josh, there's four W's in life you know, word, water, you know, two other things, you know? And he just always had these acronyms for everything. He's always teaching me stuff. And the acronyms didn't even work because I don't even know what they are now, right? Like he tries so hard to teach me things. I don't remember, I really don't remember anything my dad ever said to me. I really don't. Uh, but I remember my dad did. I remember as a kid getting up for school and I'd go in his bedroom and I'd see him on his knees praying. I remember the way he would treat my mom. I remember when I wanted to spend time with him, even when he was super busy, he'd take me in the front yard and we'd play football for like an hour. I remember how he'd want to spend time with me, like take me fishing. I remember him just showing up and caring. I remember that kind of stuff. 
I remember uh, my professor in college when I first truly like came to faith in Christ. Huge, most one of the biggest impacts in my life, Dr. Dan Wilson. I don't remember anything he said to me, and he taught me so many classes. I took like hermeneutics with him, all this kind of stuff. But you know what I do remember about Dr. Dan? His humility. It was like otherworldly. The way, no matter his position as like the dean, uh, when he was talking to you, you felt like he was listening, that he cared. He wasn't looking to get some praise or affirmation from you. I remember that kind of stuff. And right now, you might be sitting there saying, yeah, but I didn't have a dad like that. I didn't have a mom like that. Well, my dad didn't either. My dad's dad walked out on him when he was in eighth grade. Never really saw him for years, and he had to raise like three younger brothers with his mom. So how did my dad become that kind of dad? It's because he had spiritual fathers and mothers. He came alongside of him. They said, imitate me. See, we, we all have the ability and we all have the position to be these parental figures in each other's life, no matter how old you are. Because look at Timothy. He was a really young man. And he's being sent to be this embodying example of the ways and the truth of Christ to people. So the thing is this, guys. Would you want to say to somebody, imitate me? You might say right now, I would be waiting for it if I was talking to you one-on-one. You'd be saying right now, I'm not ready for that. But here's the thing. You don't have to be ready. People won't wait for you to say that you are. People are already imitating you now. So we don't have the luxury of waiting. Because people are imitating you right now. They are. Whether you see it or not. So what are they imitating? What are they catching from our lives? And I'll bet this. Who it is that you are imitating is what they're ultimately imitating. Because who you imitate is what you become. And here's the thing about imitation. Imitation, which is most challenging for us, it assumes that you are actually close enough and doing life with people so that they can imitate you. You don't imitate people from afar. If you do, all you're imitating is words and not power. You're not imitating any action, which is what Paul's whole thing is about. Is it all talk or is it real? You can't imitate people from afar. And so this is how we grow up to be like Jesus. The assumption is here that we're actually doing life together, seeking to imitate him in his ways. So imitation is the most natural thing. You're going to imitate somebody. And you're near someone if you're imitating someone. And so what does that require? It requires intimacy with people. Intimacy. Intimacy is rare, isn't it? I mean, we're not, oftentimes I think about Jesus and how many miracles he performed. He like raised people to life. Like he cast out demons, did all this crazy stuff. One of the great, I think one of the most miraculous things about the life of Jesus is that he had intimate, close friendships with people in his 30s. Like how rare is that, right? I mean, he had this intimacy with people um, I heard this week, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was famous martyr, author, pastor, um, activist during World War II, 
He wrote some famous books while he was starting the seminary where he would call people together. He wrote books like Life Together, which cast this extraordinary vision for believers doing life together, this idea of imitating each other and growing up in this Christ-likeness. We want to become like Jesus. And he once had a friend come and visit him at the seminary during the war. And he was like, Diedrich, we're friends, but this is a little intense, isn't it? And what you're doing here is a little intense. Diedrich didn't even really answer him. He just said, follow me. And they get in this boat and they row across this river. And they come up to this like high point on a hill where you can see the seminary where he was like trying to disciple people. They're doing life together. And right over here, you can see this airport that was Hitler's airport where they're training up all these people in the military to do different things. Hitler's even coming in and flying and landing and doing all this stuff. He just pointed it out. He said, man, this, it needs to be stronger than that. We're willing to get close to each other, willing to take this seriously because this needs to be stronger than that. It has to be. This imitating life of Christ, community, it has to be stronger than that. God's kingdom is one of power. It's not talk. It's actually demonstrated as true. And so the world needs you and I to go after Jesus, not just some other dream, claiming that we're going after Jesus. Anything the world throws at you to pursue other than Jesus, guys, it's merely talk and it's not power and you know it. It might feel like power for a while, but when the praise of those voices dies out, you realize it wasn't worth it. You'll see that it was a lie, it didn't last. When the comfort that you're pursuing, it goes away, you were promised, when the wealth you had, it gets ripped apart, or you still have it and you realize it's not still satisfying you, it's all talk and no power. This needs to be stronger than that. The comfort that Jesus gives needs to be stronger than the comfort people seek in this world. The wealth we eternally have in Jesus, it needs to be stronger than the wealth that we can find in this world. The approval that we have in Jesus, it needs to be stronger than the approval that we seek from other people. The opinions and praise of Jesus needs to be stronger than the opinions and praise that we seek from other people. The prestige and honor of being a child of God needs to be stronger than trying to get on some list, being at the top of something, trying to keep yourself there. The kingdom of Jesus needs to be stronger than the dreams that we chase in this world. And it is, it is. That's why it needs to be. It's not talk, it's actually power. It's talk and practice. We need each other for this. We need you. No matter who you are, we need you. Spiritual mothers and fathers, no matter how old you are, no matter how old you are, I need you to say, imitate me in the ways of Jesus. Watch what I care about. Watch what I do when I fail. Watch me receive his forgiveness again. Watch me let him pick me up. See, you can change, and you will. But God changes us by using each other as we imitate each other. So who do you want to be when you grow up? What are you after? By the grace of God, may it be Jesus. Father, this morning I pray that we would, again, seek to be doers of your word and not hearers only. That God, you would reveal to us maybe the things that we are after, the things that we really hope to become, and 
God, show us um, how you're better, Lord Jesus. May you be better. May we want to become like you, and may we take our position in relationships with each other more seriously in the sense that uh, we, we really want to be people worth imitating. People who will uh, be a breath of fresh air by your grace to each other. God, may we be a, a community of people that when others are just a part of what we're doing, there'd be just an overwhelming sense where people would say, I, I want to be more like Jesus. I just want to be with him. God, I pray that'd be true of our community. I pray it'd be true of every community here in this city and your church as a whole across this world. So may it be so by your grace and by the power of your spirit in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.